I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some hour <laughs> made fun of them and said, nah, they've just had too much wine. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at this powerful event that took place in history in this powerful passage, Lord, we ask that you send your power from on high. Lord, we ask you to light a fire in our hearts. And Lord, give us a word on our tongues to share the good news with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our convictions series in which we're looking at what are some non-negotiables, some bedrock teachings on which we construct our faith practices? And so as we've talked about the importance of Scripture, and we've looked at the Trinity, and then kind of divided that up into God the Father and God the Son, both members of the Godhead, now we turn our attention to the Holy Spirit, also a member of the Godhead and the third member of the Trinity. So sometimes we start thinking about the Holy Spirit, it makes us nervous. And we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. But I want us to get an understanding of many things about the Holy Spirit. And boy, we could talk about the Comforter, and we could talk about how it helps us to become holy and in God's image. But I want us to focus in on three aspects that we see from this passage about the Holy Spirit that... I want us to understand the divine power, and I want us to understand an inner fire and the transforming message that comes out of this. But when we look at the day of Pentecost, a lot of people say, well, isn't that the birth of, of the nation? Isn't that the birth of the church? Well, it's not completely true, because if you look at the original word for church, it means the called out ones. And God started calling out his first disciple in Abram and Sarai back in Genesis chapter 12. And his idea with the calling was, can I have a set-apart people, a people that I can bless, not just for their own uh, benefit, but can those benefits and those blessings then call other nations to come seek the God of the Hebrews? And so there's been a long line of God's people that he has reached out to. 
But what makes this incredible at Pentecost is the descent of the Holy Spirit. That there's a transforming power that's never been known to God, especially as widespread as is going to go. So at Pentecost, God's people, in essence, are getting rebooted. They're getting reloaded, and they're going to be resent out to accomplish the original mission of drawing all people unto the Heavenly Father. So we become the called out ones. Well, what did they receive when God's Spirit indwelled them? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And the first part of the aspect of what they received from on high is divine power. Okay? Divine power. And we're going to see three phenomenon that come with this exchange of power, this power that God is sending from on high. Verse 2 says that there's a violent wind. I don't know if you've ever experienced a truly incredible violent wind. The first year that Jill and I were married, we were in an old rickety apartment in Waco, uh, and a tornado came through. And let's just say that the guy that was on the trigger for the alarm was a little bit late. And so we knew the skies weren't looking good, and the alarm went off, and sure enough, I, you know, I looked out, and you know, I could see the foam cloud out there. And so immediately, Jill's like, we got to get in the bathtub. And so I, she went and laid in the bathtub, and I got the twin mattress out of our second bedroom, put it over, and she's like, aren't you getting in? She go, I, I said, no, I'm looking at our apartment. We're not going to survive this, so I want to go just check it out. And so she's like, you don't have the sense to get out of the rain. Come in. You know, no, okay. So I walked out on the porch, and I am there, and it's, it's less than a mile away, and it's coming through. And you could just feel the power. It's just like, oh my, I've never experienced anything like this. And then a grill went whizzing past, and I'm like, okay, it's time to go back in. So have you experienced, how many of y'all have been through, or or tornado, have been maybe down at the coast during a hurricane and just seen some of that? And you're like, yeah, God, you're reminded of how powerful he is. And so it was something like this violent wind that was coming through. And this is something that took place outside of them. It's important for us to understand that. So it was not just this, well, I had this kind of inner revelation, you know, and this this psychological experience, and, you know, just God, I I kind of felt. No, this is something outside of them that they experienced. They all heard it. They all felt it. And apparently it was unmistakable. So it was a divine wind from God. And in fact, the Holy Spirit, uh, in the original language, is a pneuma, which is a sacred wind. So a sacred wind from God comes blowing through, and they're all like, whoa, what was that? If we believe that this experience came from outside in, it puts us at odd and at odds and on a collision course with the culture around us about what the source of our problems is and what the solution of our problems are. Culture says that all problems that we experience come from outside of us. And we are equipped with how we're made and just who we are with every resource we need to uh, accomplish things inside of us. So it's the, it's the exact opposite of what we see in Scripture. And so you have inside, and you're hardwired with everything you need to solve all problems. Christianity says, no, 
Your problems come from inside of you, and God has the power to come in and unravel those things and to solve our problems. You see the, the difference there? So our outside resource and what we have in us are inadequate, and we can't move forward until we acknowledge we're powerless over the sin situation we find ourselves in. And so, God, you've got to give us what we need. Author Richard Bach kind of summarizes what we see in our culture around us. He says, you're never given a dream without also being given the power to make it true. So no matter how discouraged you might get at times, you must know that if you can dream something, then you will always have everything in you to make it come true. And, and that's what the world tells you, isn't it? I mean, that's what we hear people say. And if you have problems to accomplishing your dream, well, those problems are outside of you. And everyone else needs to get in line so that you can accomplish your dreams. So if you're not living up to your potential, it's because of social prejudice or your dysfunctional family or political corruption or economic disparities. All those things are to blame. And I'm not saying as Christians that we don't fight against the things that are wrong in this world. But we can't say that the only reason we have problems is because of these outside influences. You have everything within you to solve your own problems. The Bible says the exact opposite of that. You know, Martin Luther, once describing the human condition, says this. He said, human nature is curved in on itself, meaning we're self-absorbed, right? And so we kind of see ourselves at, at the center of our own universe. When I was in high school, our family went skiing um, over in, in Reynosa, New Mexico, and as we're, we left, as my dad got off work, and we drove all through the night. And so we showed up uh, the next day right before lunch at a pizza hut in Dalhart, Texas. Uh, and we were hungry. We're kind of, you know, road weary. And we all piled out of the car, went to the restroom, got a table. And so we're, it's my brother and I. And my mom and dad were like, where's the little sister? And we look, and she's out in the car. And she's got a hairbrush, and she's combing her hair, and she's putting on makeup and fixing up. And I'm like, do you really think you're going to meet Mr. Wright in Dalhart, Texas at the Pizza Hut? I, but it, it was a mindset. And a lot of adolescents go through this, that they believe all the world's a stage, and I'm on it. And people have paid admission to come see the show, so I've got to be on. And so we all go through that kind of selfish period of our lives. But unfortunately, a lot of people never grow out of that. And so that's the world we have around us. In our culture, we have a bunch of sinners of the universe running around saying that the problems are all out there. And in fact, you're the problem, and you're the problem, and, and, and you're the problem. And if you guys fix that, my world will be ready to flourish. And so that's what the world says. And so we, boy, if you will only change, then the world will be a better place. But the Christianity says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. The problem is inside of you. Well, what does Paul say in Romans 3 and verse 23? He says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Not one of us has it together. We need to realize that. And what, what did Jesus say? You know, uh, no one is good except God himself. So we've got to, to realize that. In 2010, the American Psychological Association tried to send out a warning to therapists across the United States. And they titled the paper, Where Has All Psychotherapy Gone? And according to the author, they started looking at trends that they felt were alarming. And they started looking at the number of people coming in for self-care and for therapy. And it was 30% down from where it was in, in 2008. It was 30% down from where it was a decade before. And so they're like, okay, guys, we need to rethink our practice. In fact, we need to reboot here. And the APA was suggesting their members take a different approach. They said, if we have fewer patients that are coming in for therapy, what are they going to come in for? And they said, we need to consider, start talking about, we provide solutions to problems. They found that patients weren't interested in understanding themselves better. They came in for advice. What was the advice about? How to get someone else or something else to change. And so immediately, that became a focus. And so therapists changed their sales pitch from you need to help with depression and anxiety. If you need help with the depression and anxiety, it comes to me to, oh, uh, are you having trouble with difficult people? And so that becomes the focus. And if you remember about this time, we start seeing all kinds of articles and stuff coming out about, wow, you need to learn how to set up proper boundaries from people out there, right? And you need to learn how to hold interventions with your family. That, that was never talked about, you know, before this time. And you need to learn how to reclaim your own inner power. And you need to stop dating and hanging out with toxic people. They're the reason you're struggling in your relationships. And so that's become a, a new focus. And so we're seeing this around us. But here's what I begin to think about. If all of our problems and, and circumstances and people that we don't have control over, isn't that a hopeless existence? If, if everything wrong in my world is because everyone else has problems and, and I'm a victim of circumstances and problems in other people, where am I going to turn for relief? We see something different within us. Romans 3 says, boy, all of us have, have sinned and, and, and have the, this problem. I mean, we realize that it's inward. It's only then that we can say, we can turn to our Heavenly Father and say, God, help me. God, help me with my sin problem. There's nothing good within me inherently, only that I'm a reflection of you, and all source of good goes to you. So God, you've got to help me. And, and there is hope knowing that there is a power greater than you and I that is made accessible to us so that we can change. Not through us, but through God's divine power interceding in our life. And that brings about eternal change. Okay, so in addition to this divine power from the Spirit, what else do we receive? Well, we see from this passage we receive an inner fire. An inner fire. Verse 3 says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. Think about how incredible this is. Because all throughout the Old Testament, 
boy, these folks knew their Bible, and they knew in the Old Testament when God showed up, he showed up not only in power, oftentimes he showed up in the form of fire. I mean, you think about it, we have the calling of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Well, a few chapters later, God circles back with Abraham and says, Abraham, we've got to ratify this covenant. I, I told you this is a promise. So we'll go gather to these animals, and I want you to separate them, and I'm going to walk through. And so Abraham sets up this deal, and he cuts animals in half. He leaves the two birds, you know, on either side. And then God shows up as a flaming torch, a fire pot, if you will, that kind of breezes through the two separations of, of the animals. So God is ratifying and saying, I'm making a promise to myself that what I've given to you, I'm going to remain faithful to. We see when God's people get taken to Egypt, and after 400 years, God says, I'm going to send a deliverer. So he goes and talks with Moses. How does he appear? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, he appears to Moses in a fiery bush. So he comes up, and the bush isn't being consumed, even though it's the consuming fire of our Heavenly Father. And so Moses walks up, and he's like, whoa, back off. You're in holy ground. Take off your shoes. So the powerful nature of God comes to Abraham and comes to Moses. And then after God delivers the people, they start going into the desert. How does God lead them? Well, cloud by day and what by night? Fire. They see a burning pillar up. Oh, that's God. Yeah, and later we see in, in Exodus chapter 19, God invites Moses to come up on his holy mountain. And the people are like, okay, Moses, you go. We don't want any part of this because God descended in a fiery, billowing smoke. It just engulfed the whole top of the mountain. They're like, you go, we'll stay here. Moses is like, yeah, that's probably good. God said, if you step on this mountain, you'll die. They're like, you don't have to worry about us. We're not going anywhere near it. That's how powerful God is. And this burning fire, and we're just like, oh, wow, God is among us. Now at Pentecost, that fire spreads out, and suddenly you've got lots and lots and lots of God's burning bushes on top of each of these disciples and the apostles, both men and women. God boom, goes down on top of them. This consuming fire has never been available, and now it is, and the consuming fire comes among the people. It's just incredible. And the people there say, what does this mean? What does this mean if God's consuming all-powerful fire has now been given to his disciples? What it means is we join the ministry of Jesus, and we join the family of God. The same power that's made available to power Jesus' ministry had just been given to you and I. And God says, I want you to come be a part. You know, you think about the story of Jesus coming to his cousin John the Baptist saying, I need to get baptized. No, not you. No, I'm starting my ministry. I'm honoring my, my heavenly father. I'm going to do this. And so as John puts him down into the water and brings him back up, the spirit descends from on high. And what does God say? 
this is my son in whom I delight in. You know, my spirit is going to go with him. And so there's this relationship that's being expressed here. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, it says, The Spirit comes into our hearts and bears witnesses that you and I are children of God. Okay, I didn't get any amens. So I'm going to say it again. Romans chapter 8 and verse 6 says, The Spirit comes into our hearts and bears witness that we are children of God. Galatians 4 and verse 6 says, because you're sons and, and daughters, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our heart. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. God puts this consuming fire in our hearts. And we immediately go, whoa, Abba, Father. You have welcomed us into your home. We walk into the dinner table. There are chairs for each one of us. There's a table. There, there's a table. And there are plates with our names on them. We've been invited to the great banquet. We're going to go there someday. But right now, the Spirit is there to consume our hearts and get us so focused in on our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Nothing else in this world matters. Boy, that's just incredible. So the Spirit reveals God loves you. The Spirit reveals God delights in you as He does His Son, Jesus and the Spirit lets us know, you are God's child. Your individual sins were so repulsive, it took you out of relationship with God. That's no more. God doesn't see our sins. My sins that nailed Jesus to the cross, those are gone. All God sees is the Son of God. We've been invited into this family. And so it gives us a perspective from the inside out that, wow, this power has come in, but it creates an inner fire within us. And we face life's toughest challenge. Boy, the Spirit just reminds us, well, we have a Savior, and we have a Father that loves us so much. Not only did He save us, but He loves us, and He delights in us. He wants us to be in His presence. And that's not the message I got growing up. Yes, we have holy fear of our Heavenly Father, but he is a father that loves each one of us as his children. He's gone to infinite lengths to save me at an infinite cost to himself. He says, I'm never going to let you go, ever. Just remain in me and I'll remain in you. So he will always hold on to me. And he's going to work throughout the rest of my life to remove everything bad, even some things I hold on to. He's going to say, Brad, let let go of that. Oh, okay. Let let go of that. I, I want to move you towards becoming more like my son Jesus. One day, each one of us will be perfect on that day. If that's true, why do we worry about money? If that's true, why are we worried about what our boss thinks about us? If that's true, why do you care if some knucklehead snubbed you? You're like, I don't care. I'm just here for a short time. I got a dinner reservation, and I'm going to meet that reservation. I've got a Heavenly Father that said, hey, I've sent it out. Um, uh, My son has gone to prepare a room for you. You're not going to just eat and leave. You're going to stay here for all of eternity. Why do I care and get so worked up about the stuff around me in this world? It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about the church. 
Okay, when it hits us, what we have in God, what does it look like to those on the outside? They should think we're drunk. That's what it says in the text. Verse 13. And and Paul picks up on this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. He's like, listen, um, I want you to be consumed with the Holy Spirit so it looks like you're drunk. In fact, don't get drunk on wine, but just be filled with the Spirit. He said it's the same result to people on the outside. They see you staggering around and and happy as, as a lark, but it's from a different source of the Spirit. The crowd thought they were drunk because the people came out of this room with joyful fearlessness. They get up and tell the crowd, you guys are the one that crucified Jesus. They're in the same town with a lot of the same people that put Jesus on the cross, and they're like, we don't care. We've seen through the power of the Spirit what God's plan has been all along. Kill us. That's fine. Because we'll be resurrected through the same power that raised Jesus. We don't care. Come on, bring it. Paul says, hey, if I'm here, it's to your benefit. But if I get to go home and you kill me, whoa, it's all right. I don't care. And he's staggering around and he's smiling and he's laughing as he's saying that because he knows his future is secure with his heavenly father. But that's what it looks like. These folks weren't afraid of anything. Folks, if we feel our father's arms around us, and cuddling us and holding us near. And that love becomes a fiery reality in each of our hearts. Boy, it will make us so joyful. It'll make us so fearless. We won't care about what people think about us if we're sharing the gospel message. But it doesn't do it like alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant. Uh, and you're like, I thought it made people happy. Well, it does, but it, it, it doesn't make you depressed. It just kind of makes us stupid, okay? So we're less aware of our reality. And so it depresses our concerns, our anxieties, and fears. And you can't think straight. So that's what alcohol does. The Holy Spirit depresses our fears, our anxieties, and, and our concerns through intelligence. It makes us smarter. It helps us to develop an awareness of what we have in God to where it appears we have the same joy that comes from from drinking way too much alcohol. Do you see the difference there? I hope so. It shows the reality you have with your Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. And the only person that we should worry about the opinion of and what they think of us, loves us to the moon and back, and will do anything for us. He's already demonstrated, I'm going to give you my one and only son to die in your stead so that you and I can be together. And I promise, I'm never going to let you go. Once we start understanding that, and we allow God's power to come on high, and it starts developing this inner fire within us, Doesn't it kind of make some of the problems that we wrestle with look pretty small? I hope so. I hope so. The final thing after divine power and inner fire, the Spirit gives us a transforming message. Look look carefully at verse 3. It says, all them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And in verse 11, it says, well, we, we hear them all declare the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
Some people will say, well, I, I think that, that the tongues of fire just came on the, the 12 apostles. I have a different feeling on that. I think it came upon everyone within the room for two reasons. Number one, they had to explain why both men and women were prophesying and doing different things. Plus, there's 12 of them, and if you count up, bare minimum, there's 18 languages that are being shared, the gospel is being shared in. So someone else had to to take on uh, this dialect or this one. So they're speaking in tongues, and when we hear that, Sometimes, if we've been raised to church Christ, we're like, ooh, Pentecostalism. No, tambourines. No, I don't want little ribbons on. No, I don't want that. And we're all, we're all God's children and all under one tent, but that's the crazy ants. We, we don't want that, right? And so we get fearful when we hear about speaking in tongues. In fact, it makes us real nervous. But the speaking in tongues that we hear here at, at Pentecost that's different than what we see and Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. Because what, what Paul is talking about is a spirit language that comes out. And Paul just assumes that when you're saying these words in this spirit language, those around you aren't going to understand. And, and you need an interpreter to kind of help out. Well, Glad that was good for you, but it's not beneficial for the rest of the crowd. So please have someone interpret or kind of just keep that to yourself. But what's happening here is the people aren't saying this is a confusing language. They're saying, I hear it in my own native tongue so that I get the full expression of what's being shared here. So it's just, just incredible. So the tongues at Pentecost, everyone understood so the people heard the message of the disciples in their own language. We need to realize how big a deal this is. Because in essence, what's taking place at Pentecost is the reversal of the curse that we see in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. If you remember God's people, all the people that have been created, they kind of get a, a notion. Hey, um, we got a God. I want to go see him. Maybe I've become my own God. So they started working, trying to get closer to God, at least what they told folks. But they're actually saying, let's see what impressive things we can do as top creation, you know, at the head of the pecking order. So they start building this massive tower, and the God gets together and says, um, if this is what they can do when they're working together, something this unproductive, we need to scatter them. So they gave them different tongues or different languages to send them out. And they cursed what was happening here. So what happens at Pentecost for the first time is a single message goes out in all of these scattered languages into one place. And God says, this message is so crucial that you understand this. I want to make sure you get it. And it's going to come through my disciples that I've given these tongues to. Okay. What was the message? And this is important for us to understand, not just so we understand what took place at Pentecost. This becomes our message. What did they talk about? And what are you going to talk about when a matter of faith comes up with the person sitting on the airplane next time you're up there and they see you reading your Bible or some other book? What's your message? What they talked about was the wonders of God. In the original text, is Megalia to Theo, the great things of God. And what they said is, let, 
us tell you about the great things about our incredible God. And so they start talking about the incarnation, God among us, God sending us a son that would humble himself so he could be Emmanuel, God with us. Why? Because he loved us. And then they talk about the cross. And, and God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's, God, God loves you so much he gave his son? Yes. And let me tell you about the resurrection. God had a power that he made and put at the disposal of his son to go beyond this grave. Death was defeated. It no longer becomes the single thing that we all dread. It is what we can go beyond because we are linked with the one that has shown us, the first fruits of the resurrection. That's what they're talking about. That's their message, the incredibleness of their heavenly father, the divine power that lights, a, a, boy, this inner fire within us and a common message that we get out to others. So if we're filled with the Spirit, we will be joyfully obsessed with the transforming gospel message. You'll want to tell others because of the joy that's in you and found it. And once you understand, and we pray for the Spirit to fill our hearts with what He has done for us, that joy just comes out and we can't help but talk about it. You know, the first presentation of the gospel was presented in every different language at once. And that's significant because we don't see that with other world religions. And what was the message? Is that this single message is for all people in all languages and all cultures. Because we wanted to transform your world, but we don't want you to become Eastern European people or, or Western. We, we want you to be Africans and Asians and, and India. We want us all to be Christ's followers. We're all united. One is not greater than the other. And as we become more in tune with the Spirit, boy, our community is going to get more diverse. Amen. Can we not pray for that, for our community to be more diverse as different cultures come to be a part of Collin County? May they come be a part of this church because they're like, the Spirit's here, I want in. That's what it looks like. Okay, I got it. I like the Spirit. How do I get it? Well, the Holy Spirit comes to life when each of us put our trust in Jesus Christ. God says it's a gift. You don't earn it. Just like you don't earn your salvation, it's a gift that I've given to you. And this morning, if you're seeking after divine power for living, if you're seeking after an inner fire that cannot be squelched and squelches everything else around us because nothing else matters, if you're looking for God to ride on your heart and put something on your tongue to share with those around, we invite you to come and say, God, Either I need to accept Jesus Christ for the first time, or I want to be able to come forward and just say, Lord, I need a bigger measure of your spirit because I want to be about your, your ministry all the days of our life. We can help you in any way. Come now as we stand, as we sing.